Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in today's episode, I'm speaking with Trevor Folsom. Trevor is a serial entrepreneur. He started Blueprint Management Group in 1996 with his partner, Creel. They exited and sold that business after they couldn't raise capital in the late 90s. They sold it in 2008 to private equity, being ANZ private equity for $109 million. So at the age of 39, Trevor found himself retired. That didn't last long. After three months, the boredom set in and once again he was drawn into startup companies and investing in early stage investment companies, which led him to start the Investable Club, which is now the Investable Fund, which has made some remarkable investments into Canva and also Ipsy, which are both widely valued at more than a billion dollars. I think you'll really enjoy this. I know I could have spoke to Trevor for ages. He's a really good person to speak to and I think you'll enjoy the podcast. Please don't hesitate to send me any of your feedback. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. We'd love to see that feedback coming through and please remember to share the podcast and also subscribe. Enjoy the podcast. Trevor Folsom, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, it's an exciting time of the year. You've just told me you've got a uh, likely runner in the Melbourne Cup next week. I don't, never had anyone in, with that uh, background on. Yes, well, it's my first and uh, you know, I have a fair bit of experience and, and a little bit of luck um, in the past, but nothing like this. This is a really exciting time, so it's, uh, you know, it's currently got a chance. There's a couple of more qualification uh, races ahead that could move it out, but um, yeah, it's an exciting time for it. I find myself struggling with the fact that um, speaking on a podcast of the leading minds of wealth management, we're talking about horse racing, uh, <laughs> which might be an oxymoron, I think. Um, all right, let's kick away. Trevor, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background as to yourself and your, your, your background and what's really shaped where you're at today, please. Yeah, look, I've um, been an entrepreneur you know, forever, I feel. Um, had a background in finance, financial services, and um, found a, a great co-founder that we started a business um, in the late nineties. Um, was really, Creel, yeah, Creel Price, and mm-hmm. and I, and you know, it was really um, struggle street for a long time there. And Survivor, sort of survivability, was really more about what the business was going through in the first five years, and um, we were able to you know build a, a really solid team. Um, we had a software um, business that actually was able to um, expand and over a period of 10 years we grew 10 companies through that business. Some made some success, some failed along the way and uh, fortunate enough for us we were able to exit the entire group in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, along the way we tried to raise some capital in the, in the boom time of the dot-com and you know, we weren't regarded as sexy enough. Um, so it was an interesting experience now as an investor to, to look back at that moment and being not being able to raise capital and, and really the struggle that we had. So part of the desire that moved into the new generation of business that we're in now, um, which we still see as a, a growing and um, thriving business opportunity, but that's in investing and sort of righting the wrongs of our own experience of what it was like to be an entrepreneur back then without the support that's around today. Um, but mindful of you know trying to find the right investors um, to support good companies, and so today we now um, 
uh, you know, on the other side of the fence, so to speak, mm. you know, identifying and, and working with, you know, early stage founders yep. um, with technology background and, and helping them through that early stage investment. I think the group that you exited, was that Blueprint Management? Yeah, it was called Blueprint Management Group. And as I said, it had over 10 companies through the journey. We specialised in software. Yeah. We, we worked in financial services and effectively our data tools um, were allowed large companies, mostly banks and insurance companies, to better understand their customers. Um, and it sounds sort like of, big data in today's well, language. Today it is called big data and, and we built some software. And you were unsexy back then. That's right, yeah. We didn't have the, the great acronyms or terms. You know, today's form, it's called um, FinTech. We, you know, we certainly had 29 developers that were building new, innovative ways to, to engage data um, for the banks and to better position them with their customers. And, you know, CRM technology came around and we were well entrenched in that sort of era. Um, but today we, we built some you know, first of its kind robo advice tools. Mm -hmm. Back then, didn't have a term of robo advice, but you know that's what it is today. Yeah. yeah, so it's interesting how it's come on the journey, um, and you know, now there's a whole ecosystem um, just for fintech that, that's you know um, growing all around the world, and, and you know, good founders will will make it through that survivable period. Um, some will raise lots of money and. and not do as well with it, and others will probably struggle, like we did. Um, but the better businesses tend to come out and um, you know, survive, and then grow and prosper, which was our, our experience that we like to share now with with all the portfolio companies we invest in. Mm -hmm. um, some of which have have got great success; others are, are going through that struggle as well. But we've been there before. And you mentioned you tried to raise money in blueprint management. How did you try to? A, why did you need to raise money, and B, how did you try to raise it? Yeah, look, we, we saw an opportunity to to invest further in the technology stack that we had, so we needed capital to cap, you know, to really um, increase the speed to get that thing to market. And um, there wasn't a lot around. You know, we found a small angel group, um, and you know, we presented to them, and there was a bit of interest, and had regular follow-up meetings, and. And you know, felt like there was going to be a transaction there, but at the end, um, it wasn't able to. And, and I think timing, as much as anything, was to do with that. There was some real challenges, um, you know, with the, the first uh, dot com crash. So um, yeah, we put our heads down and, and raised the best form of capital that we still believe today, and we coach into all of our portfolio, and that's raising revenue. And you go and raise, you know, customer revenue. That's a sustainable way to to grow your business because you've got validation from the customer. You've got money to go into the bank to um, you know, obviously extend your team and workforce. And if you keep reinvesting in your business, um, you know, the time will come that you can you, know, you can attract capital if that's what you require. And why why did why were you unsuccessful and what, what were the key things when you, like so, so A, is it just that there was no liquid markets around? Or B, was it all to do with the, the position of the business? Look, a combination of both. And, and probably, you know, looking back and what we know now um, as investors, mm. um, we missed the mark, I suspect. You know, we were probably too ingrained in our own company. Um, we understood it, we could see the opportunity, but probably trying to explain that back then was, was a challenge. But there was timing issues. You know, we did get some interest. Um, and we had a very supportive board around us that, you know, that introduces to a number of people that, you know, 
trusted networks. Um, but I think in the end, you know, timing, um, you know, that, that was the hardest part. It was, you know, 2001, 2002 that we were trying to raise. It was a pretty challenging time. Um, there's lots of um, money around, but, you know, accessing it for the business that we had was um, a, a bit of a challenge. And you exited that business? Uh, 2008. 2008. And, and how many employees did it have in 2008? Uh, we had over a 1,000. In, in the end, through all the companies that we had, and yep. um, you know, we said a lot of them were in, in the IT teams, but also we had a very large call center that supported that business, and um, so we brought you know a lot of entry level staff through, mm -hmm. built a great culture to retain the, the talent, and, and created a you know a program for them to um, you know, to extend their careers through our business or through our, our clients. And who was the buyer of that business? That ended up being um, ANZ Private Equity. Mm -hmm. um, they were very uh, active in that period in sort of 2005 to 2008. Um, they were our bank. Um, they were only, the only bank that we didn't have as a client, funnily enough, and um, <laughs> so they saw some strategic value as well as the, the investment opportunity. And what was that process like going through that trade sale process? Yeah, look, we were initially looking at an IPO, but you know, in 2007 there was early signs of you know, the subprime issues in the US, so we our board and, and ourselves decided to pull back from going um, public um, and we were happy just to lock down and continue our growth, but then we started attracting interest from a whole lot of the uh, private equity groups. Mm -hmm. um, so we created a process um, to do that and engage a corporate advisor that managed that to allow us to keep focused on, on our business. And um, you know, after some successful bidding and negotiation, um, with a number of the parties, we end up you know, working with um, ANZ. It was an emotional, difficult time. I've often heard it described as hip replacement surgery mm. for owners. Yeah, look, it, it was. And fortunate enough, again, we, we had a really experienced <coughs> advisory board at that time. We, we had founders that you know, had been through that themselves, and they shared a lot of their, um, their own experience with, with us. So we were always good at taking advice. And... Um, you know, that was one that was really uh, made clear to us that it's, you know, just because of the transaction is, you know, um, being created, the process to get through is not necessarily, you know, something that you can really forecast and you need to be prepared for that emotional, um, firstly to, to get the deal done, but then life after that. And um, so we're fairly aware, but, you know, it's, it's something that today we help with a lot of our founders going through. How, how old were you in 2008 when you retired? Yes, yeah, so I was uh, 39. <clears throat> How did retirement go at 39? Look, it didn't. wasn't very successful. Um, you know, <laughs> what I did you try to do? I promised the wife and myself that you know I was I was removing all technology for 12 months. I was going to be you know out in the surf and on the golf course, um, and at home with the kid. You know, I had a you know, young child at that stage, and and yeah, you know, the the life balance was there, but the the brain was quickly um, challenged by the lack of uh, engagement and I really found it difficult. I think three months in, um, I started accepting calls from people that, to get involved in their businesses and, and slowly just worked away. So I, I'd like to say I, I made you know, maybe six months of uh, retirement and then uh, I just found myself wanting to really get involved in, in mostly supporting others um, through their journey and, and I did that in a very small way um, sometimes advisory, a uh, little bit of investing, but mostly 
spending time and really interested in the new form technology that was you know, um, around us um, back then and, and certainly started to emerge you know, in those in the later, later part of 2010 and 11. And you started then making investments and became an angel investor into many of these technology companies? Yeah, look, a bit of early advice I got again from one of our former advisors was just because you're a successful entrepreneur with an exit didn't make you an immediate success in investing. Yes. And the dangers of such. And he shared a few stories of many of his friends that have gone through that challenge and and trying to transition. So, um, look, I took that advice. I jumped on planes and went and immersed myself in in Silicon Valley, um, which is where really the most the activity was. And I, yeah, got I think well 95% of the world's venture capital comes from a five mile radius around Stanford University, which is sort of the hub of Silicon Valley, which That's is right. unbelievable. Back then it was more so, you know, if you yep. wanted to be a founder and raise capital from there, you had to move there and you had to be within walking distance of that Sand Hill Road. Mm -hmm. It's not so much like that today. In fact, it's, it's really, um, changed a lot but back then it was an easy place to go and learn and, and connect and being a former founder um, <clears throat> with some capital and some desire to invest I was able to you know pick in the, and, and be mentored by some of the great former entrepreneurs that had transitioned themselves into investors um, and so my early investments were alongside those and um, I was fortunate enough to to you know, gain some knowledge and learn that you know early stage is where the real returns are. Mm -hmm. um, bre breadth of portfolio and diversity inside that portfolio is also important. And that as the numbers grow, you need the structure and systems to be able to support not only to invest, but to support the business. The so people. talk to us a little bit, because that's quite common. We have often clients who experience a liquidity event. They've worked hard all their lives building Exco widget business um, and they're very, very good at that and they know that inside and out and they're very willing to invest in their ability and back their own behaviour to, to produce a result. Um, I think what you touched on before is very interesting about you know the counsel you received, which I think is very wise in that it's easy for people to assume that their um, skill, talent, business knowledge transfers across to then making passive investment decisions or a, a broader wealth management. Talk to me a little bit about the first stages. Like you, you mentioned breadth of portfolio. What sort of, you know, how many of these do you think somebody should have and how much of their total portfolio should it represent? Well, that's probably more, more, more of the stuff that, of wealth advisors. But in how many to get diversification do you think mm. somebody should be involved in? of early stage companies yeah. if they want exposure to this area? Look, lots of people talk about the one in 10, you know, the one mm. success you'll get in, in 10. Um, so therefore, you know, you know, people think, well, I'm gonna go out there and find 10 investments. It's not easy to find 10 investments, especially when you're trying to diversify. Um, if you're on your own or even a small little club, again, you tend to only hunt in the areas that you're at. So 10 inside Sydney, inside your world of expertise is pretty challenging to even get to. Um, but to get the one in 10 ratio, if you only have 10, the chances of, of even achieving that one success. So Matham, you know, the former sort of says that you need around 30 to 40 to have a greater chance of getting that three or four mm. great success stories. And, and those three or four in your portfolio can make such a difference to your returns. Um, and then the middle part of your portfolio, um, you know, 
may not be the, the 40 to 100x returns, but you know, some good positive 5 to 10x. Um, and then there's obviously some that you know, get zero um, burn up or, or you know, just paddle along and become nice um, uh, personal businesses for the founders. So that's sort of the number formula. But back to the other part and, and where I started, you know, I had this belief and, and learned very early on that when you're investing early, you know, the asset is the founder and the founder team and their ability to, to not dream up the idea or the business model, it's to execute. And mm. you know, so their backgrounds and their attachment to their industry is important. So I had a view that you know, even though I was leaning on others to present deals to me, I always had to meet the founder. Um, it was my only criteria. And, and if time didn't allow me to meet them, then I wouldn't invest. Um, if I met them, I would really work and try and learn about them and, and go beyond just the coffee meeting and do as much research as I could on them as individuals. Um, and you know, when possible, even take them into sales meetings to see how they perform and introduce them to networks prior to investing. So it's the people that make a difference. My view around that was I know that the business that they were pitching to me in that very early stage was more than likely not going to be the business that we exited. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, their ability to execute and to get through that um, was my you know, key criteria. So. Um, yeah, my first 10 deals came that way. Um, the other component early days was I had to feel that I could add some value to the business because I didn't want to just put money in. I wanted to put time and, and use my brain and my experience. So that kind of limited me a little bit in terms of the sectors that I could invest in. Um, but it gave me confidence that I could add some value and, and certainly understand the business. Um, over time, as the portfolio has grown, certainly there's a lot of businesses in our portfolio that I don't have that same confidence and background in, but um, we've got a whole group of club members now that I leverage off and we work together. So you formed a club that. and that's called? <clears throat> that's Investable. Investable. Yeah, so Investable started as a club. <clears throat> when did that start? Well, we had a, we call it Club One, which was an informal club. Yes. Um, there was eight or nine of us <coughs> and we invested, you know, behind my access. So I gained the first access. Um, and was only comfortable to share that with others, um, including Krill Price, my, my co-founder in Investable and former co-founder, um, about four years into my investment um, journey. So I kind of did my apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. I then was comfortable enough to share with others and we started investing together. So were those first investments you had, were, were they largely successful or what were the, the big learnings you took out of those before forming the club? Yeah, look, success is measured in many different ways. I, I guess you know one of the first investments is still going today. It's produced some dividends. You know, it's probably in in paper value moved up thirty x. Um, but it was thirty a, times value. Yeah, but wow. it was, and you know, but it's not going to be. I, I can't see it ever being to that you know that hundred x. But it's been a good business to produce that. There's there's some early failures, um, but fortunate enough, the confidence I got out of that early portfolio is certainly allowed me the, com the ability to share with others mm -hmm. and then eventually f create a formal club. Yes. Um, investable today. So definitely there's, you know, success allowed me to turn this into a thriving club initially. Yes. Um, subsequently, we've now raised a fund off that and the fund and club work nicely together. So the club members now, we 
a majority of them are very active in finding deal flow. A majority of them can add value along the way, whether it's in due diligence or whether it's post-investment and supporting them. So now, um, Creel and I have been able to replicate ourselves in our own experience as founders, transitioning into investors via a club model, um, and now sharing that with others who are equally either you know, progressive in their own areas of expertise, um, certainly for finding deals yes. or supporting deals. And so we've got to, uh, you know, we, we badge ourselves as the founders backing founders, Yes. And a majority of our club have either been through the experience as a founder or supported founders in their in their journey in their own career paths. And that's based in Sydney. Well, it's headquartered in Sydney. We also yes. have headquarters in in Singapore, mm-hmm. and we have a very diverse group of investors that are spread out all across the globe and growing. Yeah. Um, heavy weighting on Australia at the moment, of course, is where we started this. Um, but a number of members in out of Southeast Asia. Um, US partners, we've got investors that are coming on board in Europe and you know, they all bring some value in terms of either diverse, helping us diversify our portfolio and exposure or adding value to the portfolio once we've invested. Fantastic and the network, I'm, I'm actually running through my head and I can think of a handful of people in, 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 of my clients who would love this concept of deploying their expertise and being involved and if they're able to do it in a diversified way and in a smaller way of their portfolio, um, you know, I think it, it's very appealing. Now, I think one of the successes you've had within the club is Canva, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about that. I, don't, I actually don't think a lot of people will know what Canva is, what it does, and how it is despite the success of it, which is kind of surprising. Yeah, so as a product, it's, it's amazing. And from day one, you know, I could really un- I could see the potential um, in changing the way that you know people all around the world um, create their, their, their you know their graphical interpretations, so they build a system and are now a network and a marketplace of millions of people across the globe that can jump online and cre- you know create a a poster. Or so this a, is like a, a, des- a, a software web-based soft uh, desktop publishing type of tool that's right, that yes. allows people to design things and, and whether you want a logo or a photo with writing on it or whatever it is. That's right. And, and you know, it, it's growing at a rapid pace in terms of their product reach and their ability for all sorts of creative people, whether they're, you know, doing it as a career or my 12-year-old daughter who builds all of her, you know, projects and and invitations and, and yeah, almost lives on Canva as a, as a way to express itself through social media. So it's, it's just expanded and really, you know, a great example of finding out what a customer wants, you know, and, and has something in mind around a particular um, industry like graphic design and allowing them to go out there and, and use the tool, mm. learn from there how they use it and build across that. And so they're now um, just growing at a rapid pace um, they've got revenue, they're in profitability mode, which is you know, unique when you invest in growth companies like that. They've had some great success at raising capital, um, but that's because they're a great business with really strong founders that led the charge and, and um, were able to attract other great people. And you invested when? So we were, their first round of capital was a seed round. Yes. Um, I found them in Silicon Valley, funny enough, through a partner. An investment partner I had who who found this Australian company who was blown away by them, but 
couldn't understand um, that you know they weren't raising money out of Australia. Um, we got connected. I happened to be in Silicon Valley at the time, fortunate enough. Um, I, I met with Mel first, came back to Sydney, quickly met with Cliff, and uh, really uh, embraced what they were trying to achieve and, and invested. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. There wasn't room to in, to invite others in that round, but in the subsequent rounds, I invited others from our. Uh, initially our informal club and to invest about what year is this Trevor uh, that would have been 2011 2011 okay yeah. right out and then the club came in after that and then um, what was the last capital round that they did uh, that was just this year mm-hmm. they raised some money from Sequoia China to okay. expand and, and they raised $40 million at a, wow. at a billion dollar valuation. A $1 billion valuation. So this is a unicorn in investment talk, yep. um, you, know, you know, that you've got a billion dollar valuation on a private company, which, you know, people talk about, you know, the Googles, the Ubers, the Facebooks in this type of light that they, they never exist. And here you've got one. Whereabouts is Canva based in Australia? In Surrey Hills. In Surrey it's Hills. Road, so you had to go to Silicon Valley to meet a group that's right. down in Surrey Hills to invest in. And the founders originally from Perth. So you know, okay. there you go. There's no, you know, there's no um, system or, or you know model that suggests that any you know the founders are all going to be based in Sydney. You mm-hmm. need to get out there and have an expanded network to find these. So that's been a great example of the very, very upside on this. And I think Ipsy is that another portfolio company. Yeah. I really like this one in that it seems so straightforward and easy, but then you go, aha, uh-huh. and then you think, well, why didn't somebody else think of this or do this in that? Let, let me see if I can articulate the value proposition. You can correct me. That basically they were selling um, people who wanted cosmetics once a month in a little bag, like a sample bag, um, so people could say, I'll try this, I'll try that. And I, I think um, some people would try those cosmetics and then um, they actually cotton onto the fact that, well, hang on, the, these people and this data and there are lots of cosmetics firms like Estee Lauder and others that would actually pay to get access and to be able to give these people because once they get onto, you know, we've, we've got, a podcast with John Hempton, a great investor, and he talks about um, a company that sells hair dye in Russia, in Germany, and he loves it because it's pricing elastic, that once people get onto that, they stay with that, and I'd imagine um, people, once they sample and find whatever cosmetic it is, they stay with that for a long period of time. So is that that's the business model of Ipsy, where they're, they're yeah. supplying, they've got a network of people who have subscribed and they receive. Um, these goods once a month um, and the thing that I love about this is that they, they worked out that well actually the suppliers will actually pay you to give it to them and the people will actually pay you to receive them as well. Yeah and look the brands um, are the beneficiary of this you know if you remember way back when you probably you know did a fun run in the city to surf there would mm. be people throwing samples at you in these little Yep. plastic things, which really wasn't yeah, the market. Correct. You know, I, I didn't want to try it. At 18-year-old kid, I didn't want to try some new shampoo. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the model's been around for a long time, but then when they were able to, with the benefits of technology and the ease of this subscription marketing, um, it did a couple of things. One, it obviously was able to drive interest from the consumer to receive samples from a young, um, mostly females that want to explore and learn a little bit about makeup and, and skincare, it's a great way to test and sample. 
But then the, fa the brand started catching on that these consumers were then jumping straight online to tell the world and mm -hmm. their followers about the experience, um, the good parts about a certain product and also the negative components. So the brand started catching on and realizing that they're getting the hands of their samples and almost like an R&D marketing um, budget, yeah. they're able to put product into real consumers who actually pay for the experience. And when they have a good experience, they become almost brand ambassadors in that they then tell all their networks via social media once again. That's and right. the power of that. So we raised we raised one round of capital. Um, we got a lot of pushback again from our informal club. A few people passed because the valuation didn't make sense to them because there was an established <coughs> leader in the US which was called Birchbox. Um, our, our own thesis felt that Birchbox were great at leading the way and they had you know, 300,000 customers. But um, when we compared what Marcelo um, and Michelle Fan were doing, they're really the first generation of influencer marketing, um, using a lady who had 3 million followers on YouTube teaching young girls how to apply makeup and skincare, was a much better marketing proposition than Birchbox, who was still trying to acquire. Um, on bus packs and, and, and above the line media, a very expensive way to acquire customers. Mm. They had success and they were way out in front and so quite rightly some of our investors said you know, they didn't feel that Ipsy was going to be able to crack that. Um, I had different views. I felt Marcelo with the partnership with Michelle was the winning one um, and he was able to prove that right. They never raised another cent. They went straight into profitability within six months. Um, certainly there's some growth challenges beyond that because they're at three and a half million subscribers paying $10 a month Wow! now. So you don't get that business without further injection, but they're able to reinvest. Um, they really took an opportunity round from TPG, one of the top tier VCs um, in the world, who really pitched to them that they could help them expand beyond the US. And so their capital went in, which they didn't really need majority of it, yeah. the capital injection went in there, it was strategic value, it allow us as early investors to take um, our money plus many multiple times back but still retain a big portion of our, our stake in that business. And you know, so many of great examples of unicorns going through five and six rounds of capital which dilutes the early stage investors, here's an example of one that you know only had one other raise, allowed us early investors to, to get some early liquidity and still um, support a, a growth business that now, you know, is well over, I believe, a, a billion dollar business as well. Even though its last capital raise was at 500 million, um, because that's that's the amount that they um, needed to, to mm -hmm. raise. Mm -hmm. Now that's two great examples. Give me an example, and maybe some of the learnings that have come out of one that hasn't gone so well. Yeah, we've had some and, and things that we've learnt and to put into our process about founders. Um, we, we know as founders ourselves, and there's many great stories and views around the world in investing that you know, a startup founder can be somewhat unique um, and is really critical in the early stages, but they may not be the, the founder for future success. And so their, their ability to recognize that themselves, mm -hmm. um, be comfortable with that transition. So we've built a whole lot of tools that help us uncover that early on and we'd much rather bring that forward to, to founders. And so that came out of a, an unsuccessful investment where a founder, we believe, um, had an opportunity to, to partner with others and to step into a role, um, but chose not to and, and subsequently 
um, you know, the investor support dried up and, and that business um, didn't pursue, even though it was well on its way. Um, there's other examples of, you know, not doing enough research in terms of, you know, competitive landscape and, and you know, um, looking outside um, just Australia, yes. um, especially if you're looking at investing in a business globally. So we've now got a great network and there's much more data than ever before available. You know, when I first started investing in this space to, to access global data, now there's many companies that, you know, offer a very low cost subscription that we tap into. We can really do some yeah. investigative work. It doesn't mean we're not scared of competition. It's actually, you know, an asset as an investor, I believe, if there's others in the world that are trying to solve a problem and you can learn from. I wonder now, if there, there are many startups staying off the grid, so to speak, to try to avoid detection so they... They come onto the scene with a, you know, a, a big bang and try to capture all of the market mm. rather than, I, I suggest what you're saying now is, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it, it was kind of difficult to do your analysis on if everyone's doing someone like Ipsy is doing. Mm. Today, you can go online and find all around the world top 50 people trying to do this thing. Yeah, there probably is. I certain, I it's a big risk, though. I, I imagine because, certain. you know, the first thing people do now is try to, you know, raise money in a GoFundMe page or whatever it is, so they're on the radar straight, you know, with networks mm. and everything else, so it's a double-edged sword. Well, look, this has been a fantastic um, conversation. I, I, I've got to call Stumps on it, otherwise, you know, I, I really enjoy this space because I could talk about it for ages. Um, really, thank you very much for your input and uh, joining us inside the road trail. Thanks, David. appreciate your own invitation and, and love to share more. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.